we're back with uh, another episode of the Refu Podcast. We've got a great guest today, Michelle Benfer, SVP of Sales over HubSpot. Uh, thanks for joining us, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, uh, wanna wanna kick off with um, you know how you ended up at HubSpot. You you and I have interesting backgrounds of like non traditional SaaS. You you were in fashion. I was not in fashion, but I was in hospitality and got into SaaS. So would love to hear. How you ended up there, short log me and stuff like that in the fashion world too. Sure, sure. So I've been in HubSpot almost five years, be five years in uh, just a couple of months now. And um, I grew up in Boston. I did a stint in New York City after college where I, as you mentioned, worked in fashion media. So magazines like Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, uh, a lot of like the big um, publishing houses um, out of New York. And I transitioned from media to online advertising with AOL, uh, which I'm sure many of your listeners don't even know what that is. Uh, and then eventually I realized if I were, was going to continue to oversee large sales teams, especially in the Boston market, uh, SaaS was really where it's at. And so that was kind of my foray into the SaaS world. I worked for this incredible company, logged me in. Um, and, uh, you know, I moved up the ranks there, you know, leading some of their high growth products HubSpot, uh, especially in the Boston market, um, and not just the Boston market nationally was always known as an incredible place of culture. It was, you know, consistently ranked one of the best places to work. Um, even up until recently, I think we were number one on Glassdoor, number one, number two on Glassdoor for best places to work. So I was always intrigued from a culture perspective. Outside of that, it has always had best in class products. So we started out as a marketing automation um, tool and kind of leading in that MarTech space. And then I met with the founders, both um, Brian Halligan and Darmesh. And when I started, they told me this vision for really being the core CRM um, globally, especially for SMB mid-market scaling companies. So when I saw that vision, I said, I want to be a part of this. And the company is only, um, you know, really more than tripled, quadrupled their growth since I've been there. So when I arrived five years ago, it was about 500 million in revenue. Uh, we just had our earnings call and, you know, we're just a little shy of 2 billion right now. So it's been incredible growth, great culture. Uh, so those are some of the reasons why I joined HubSpot. You made a, you, you mentioned that um, you made a, con it was like a conscious effort to go from media, right? Into SaaS, it sounded yeah. like, right? We come across so many people, maybe not quite that have had the experience in seniority and in, in sales broadly as you did, but maybe even earlier in their career that are trying to get into SaaS. Was there, was there anything that you remember like that you, that you did strategically to position yourself to make that jump? I don't know what the, at the time, what the hiring environment was like or what the demand was like from a talent perspective. Um, but, but maybe just dig into that just a little bit. Like you, you knew you wanted to make the jump. You knew that was a, a better path or whatever. Like what, what were, was there anything that you, like, how'd you approach that? Yeah. That transition? Um, I'm going to, I'll give you the real answer and then I'll, and then I'll give you like what the professional answer is. The real answer is a little fake it till you make it. Yeah. And what I mean by that is I didn't know the ins and outs of the SaaS world. Um, and so I did a lot of research. I went to, you know, the log me in Wikipedia page and I learned about, you know, some of the terminology they used about what made their technology um, unique and different. One of them was like the gravity platform. I had no idea what that meant. 
But when I was in my interviews, I said, I'm really intrigued by your gravity platform and how that, you know, uniquely positions log me in versus some of their competitors. What that means, I had no idea. But Wikipedia told me that, right? But but one of the things I've learned in SaaS, and I would say this for any of salespeople, you don't have to know all of the ins and outs of the technology, but you need to know how the technology um, uniquely positions the company against their competitors. So I think as I was making the transition, I wanted to understand, you know, what is the product market fit of this company? Am I going to sh- show up there and, and are we... Um, an underdog, which I love working for an underdog, uh, you know, number two in market, maybe number three in market. Uh, that to me is a ton of fun. And am I going to be able to be, you know, added value to the culture? And, and then I'd say the last piece, which has carried me throughout my career and would be my advice to anyone is have confidence in yourself and your ability to learn, have confidence in your ability to um, be uncomfortable but to take on new challenges. And that's the part for me that, you know, if you don't have that pit in your stomach for almost every job that you're taking, you're not growing and learning. And so I approached it as like, I walked in at log me in. I was overseeing six men who many of them had been at the company five plus years leading sales teams. And I was coming in to tell them how to do their job better. And I had never worked in that industry and I had never done their job. So talk about being, you know, uh, a little bit of imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. So that transition was really, I have the confidence in myself that I can figure it out. I've figured things out before that I didn't know the answer. Um, and, you know, just understanding how this company is uniquely positioned and can I bring it to market and am I going to have fun doing it? So that was, that was kind of my approach. Wow. That's so love that. And then let me just, let me just dig in on the, on the, okay. So you had like a couple strikes going, right. The gender thing, you lack of industry experience thing, right. They, the experience in that company thing, when you're saying six men that had all been there five years, uh, how did you, it's all about like, right. They have to trust you, right. And trust that what you're putting out there for them will lead to greater success for themselves. Uh, and until you can get that, it's kind of like you're always, you always have a pit in your stomach about the people that work for you. If you feel like maybe they don't, how did you get, how, how long did it take you to build that trust? And were there different things that you did? Like, that's an incredible, like something I think a lot of people would gain value from is coming in as a new manager. Um, and any one of those things, whether it's a woman coming in to lead men, whether it's not having industry experience, whether it's somebody that has way more experience, any one of those things sets you back, right? And you had like a trifecta of hurdles to jump over. How did you, like, how did that work out? What did you do? Um, yeah, you know, I'll, add, I'll add one other curveball to that. I found out walking in the door that I was pregnant and yeah. I was starting a job. And I was at the time, probably four weeks pregnant and then had to tell them within eight weeks that like, I'm going to start getting fatter and you're going to wonder if I'm really stressed out or what. And it was like, actually, I'll be leaving in about seven months to go have a child. So that was another, that was another pretty awkward one. But um, I, I mean, in the end, I think, you know, we're, we're people and we're humans and you gain trust by getting to know your people. And for me, getting to know um, 
my team and how they work is I start with data. That's like my, my go-to it's, it's black and white and being able to understand trends and how are the teams working and what are the ins and outs of, you know, deal size, lead conversion rates, um, customer retention, um, you know, how, how, what's the activity that, you know, reps are doing today? Is that working? What are the best reps doing? Is it the most activity? Is it the like least activity? Is it that their deal size is higher? So the landscape I start with is learning and trying to understand. And then, and the next piece is getting to know my people, you know, and how do they coach? How do they lead listening? Like one of the things I would ask is just BC, BCC me on your emails to your teams and it's not because I, you know, want to micromanage. I want to see and hear and feel the tone and how they communicate. That helps me understand how they lead. And once I understand that, then I understand how I can either help them or um, coach them. And so it's really, you know, it's about learning and getting to know your people. Uh, and then I really, you know, my, I still do this today when I interview managers you know, I believe you should have an energetic and fun culture. I, I have fun at work. And so, you know, I try to get to know not just my leadership team, but also all the reps. And we would have a lot of fun with, you know, doing live role play battles and, uh, you know, bagel Fridays back when we used to be in the office, but it was also just having fun with the team. Uh, um, I'm here at a couple of teams. One, continuous learning, like from the Wikipedia page, figuring out what the products were, your people, um, I mean, that I think dude, Brian and I talk about this all the time, like intellectual curiosity is like the number one thing I think we think that salespeople can have because you want to understand if product market fits going to be there to your point earlier Two, you want to figure out your prospects. You want to dig into what they care about and if you can map back to helping them. Um, so I love hearing that. And I don't I don't like that theme continues to come out when we talk to sales leaders. Um, I, I want to dig on the fun thing. Like what's beyond Bagel Friday and the, and the battles and all that? Like what, what are the most fun things that you feel like you've done in the office that, that maybe other companies haven't even thought of? Yeah, I'll give you one that wasn't in the office and, and maybe some of the office ones. Uh, so And COVID too. Like right, during yeah. COVID, yeah. So one of my favorite ones, I mean, this was like a like pee my pants laughing event uh, <laughs> was um, we, we did this... Um, it was like a cook-off and we sent, you know, we mixed up teams and this was, I was overseeing the, uh, the North America small business sales team, which it was probably 150 reps. Um, right now I oversee uh, roughly about 550 or so. And, um, and you got, you know, placed with different teams that weren't your core team. So you got to meet new people every team got their own recipe sent to them and they were allowed to expense any of the ingredients. So then you'd go off with your team. It was about a two hour session and everyone was able to expense like a bottle of wine and the ingredients. Those were the two things that you could expense. Which could have been an ingredient too. It could, it could have right. been an ingredient as well. It was used, I think, not for the food though. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, then we had three judges, I was one of them, and the teams had to come back and they had to choose, you know, which person on their team had the best presentation, like the way the food looked, which one could describe the taste best, and which one could, you know, tee up uh, how the team worked together. And so no one could taste the food, but it was all about selling. How can you sell the vision? How can you sell the way that it looks? How can you sell the taste? And it was so funny. I mean, people really brought their creativity. 
and people that you just don't hear from. You got to see a whole other creative side, funny side. And it was one of the best events that we've ever done. And uh, in the end, it wasn't even about the event. It's about the people. Um, but that was a great opportunity just for people to kind of shine. So, so loved that. Uh, we did one a few years back at HubSpot, which was a field day, kind of an old fashioned, you know, three-legged race, you know, hold the, the egg on the spoon and, you know, and we had people in teams and we had a taco truck there and, um, and then we all went out and, you know, grabbed beverages after, after the field race, we had tug of war, but it was just like a real old fashioned, you know, day of field day of competition. So uh, that was another fun one. So we've done it. We've done a ton of them. We do spiffs all the time for like boat cruises in the Boston Harbor and um, things like that. But but yeah, just a, a a lot of fun. Very cool. The, let me let me kind of relate it to that. When you made the transition from LogMeIn uh, to HubSpot, you mentioned that it was well known to have a great culture as well as products. Um, you know, this is kind of refu related, but but what did you? How were you able to validate that? Right? I mean, you know, com certain companies have different reputations for this and that, and you know, but ultimately, if you decide to take a role there, you're taking particularly a leadership role, an important role. Um, you know, you've got to, you know, and it sounds like you met with the founders, which is which is probably pretty helpful as well. Um, so I guess a, you know, were there other things that you did? you know, in your diligence to validate what you'd heard was actually true, right? And and maybe for other sales professionals who may be considering joining your team or any team, yeah. um, then maybe they don't have the opportunity to meet with the founders, um, you know, should they do that? Should they do something similar? So just kind of curious as to how you thought about like diligencing the, the HubSpot reputation before you joined. And it does sound sound like a lot of fun, but uh, maybe, maybe I'll, maybe I'll come apply for one of your AE roles soon. Yeah, I, I think it's fun, but uh, you'd have to ask the team. So, um, I mean, you know, at the time Glassdoor was, you know, the, Who's the that? exactly Glassdoor. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a good source, but then when you take a look at, you know, some of the larger, um, you know, great places to work or comparably, um, you know, what are the best companies to work for? HubSpot was always in the top 10. So that was, it, there was, there were multiple sources that you could go to that validated the culture. When you go in and you interview, one of the things you learn about HubSpot is quarterly, they do their own survey on employee happiness. And it's pretty in depth. It's everything from what's your intention to stay, you know, um, it, you know, what are the areas in which you think that we can improve? So before people kind of go external and say, you know, we have a culture problem. We're always listening to our teams. And we do that at a company level every 12 weeks. And then we also do micro pulses within our departments or within our managers. So I'm always, before a manager has a performance review, we have upward feedback from their team on how they're doing um, so that we can really give them like a proper 360. So from overall culture perspective, they really explained to me how important it was and the ways in which they operationalize understanding and learning and um, enhancing their culture. Um, so that was one. And then I did my due diligence. I called people I knew who worked there and I said, listen, you know, confidentially, I'm considering a role. What's it really like? Um, which is something that I love about RepView is you, you actually get the, the voice of the rep, 
you know, saying the real deal and about the important things, you know, like, are people actually hitting their number? Are people making, you know, what are they making for money? Are they happy there? Uh, what's the, um, you know, attrition rate or reps churning out on the backside, even though they come in and they get hired. So that was kind of how I did my due diligence. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I know one of the, one of the key things we want to always love to get into a little bit is as a sales leader, uh, you know, how you think about, and I know Darren, you've got some, some stuff we want to talk through, like how, how, reps out there can can get in it at HubSpot and and how you think about you know sales talent and what you look for on your team maybe we turn you want to dive into that part of it a little bit too yeah I, i'm i'm curious like uh given your background not starting in SaaS, like maybe right right in the beginning of your career do you have a soft spot for that with people that are maybe looking at at joining HubSpot or uh, even on the intellectual curiosity side, like that's obviously near and dear to you. Like, how do you, what do you look for when you're looking for, for candidates to join? Yeah, big time. I mean, I would say, of course, we love someone who's worked at a fabulous SaaS company and uh, has done well there and they kind of know that playbook. But certainly some of our most successful reps have come from different industries, whether it's been media, if it's been recruiting, if it's been insurance, we've had people that have come from finance a ton of different backgrounds. Um, we've had people who, you know, have been career switchers in their thirties and they've come in to be a BDR because we have very, um, formulaic, uh, promo prep pathing. So we can show people, this is the percent who come in as a BDR and, and within the next year, two years, three years, on average, this is what your uh, growth can be from a OTE perspective, your on-target earnings. So we have all that from a data perspective. So uh, we look for people that, to your point, intellectual curiosity, uh, they have a commitment to winning, that they've overcome adversity in some way, shape, or form in their life. And it could be personally, it can be professionally, that they can articulate that when you are faced with tough times in an uphill battle, like how have you dealt with that and how did you come out the other end and what did you learn? I think that's a that's an important one. Um, you know, the learning piece, continuous learning is another one because at any high growth company, whether it's new products, if it's a new, you know, pitch, new go-to-market new industry that you're going after, you have to be willing to uh, get uncomfortable, uh, new technology that you're using to do your day-to-day -day work. So we look for that. And then also coachability. And we actually had um, a MBA candidate from MIT come in and I worked on this project with him. And we went back and we looked at what are the attributes that we, we coach, or I mean, that we interview reps for. And as I mentioned, the key attributes are coachability, intellectual curiosity, commitment to win, overcoming adversity, um, and like, you know, continuous learning. And coachability was number one that tied, it correlated to the success of our reps who um, were over 100% attainment um, and above. And so as a part of our interview process, we have people do a role play, you know, of a, of a mock call and part of the role play is they're going to get feedback from, you know, the managers and how do they adapt to the feedback and try again and do something a little bit differently. So we, we coach to that um, and we have that as a part of our interview process, but those are the things that we look for in our reps. And is, is that process oriented? Like the, the different pillars that you look for, like you've got it systematically intertwined? 
Yes. So one of the things we try to do as best as possible, it's not perfect, is reduce bias. So we try to um, interview candidates the same way every time, um, you know, with variations, you have a different follow-up question, you might want to probe more, but we stick to very core attributes. Um, and our recruiters will share this um, with candidates, even when I'm interviewing executives, I'll say, you know, are you familiar with kind of some of the things we'll be topics we'll be touching on today it might be stakeholder management, it might be strategic planning. Um, so we let candidates know these are the areas in which we're going to be asking you questions so they can prepare, but um, they are tried and true. And we go back and we check in on them every six months and see, you know, we, we iterate on our interview process. But yes, those pillars are pretty consistent. The coachability one, just to dig in on that a little bit, uh, in your role play, right, you'll, they'll do something and then the team will provide some feedback. Like, hey, and are you, are you literally, is the team, the interview team literally having kind of the role play reset a little bit and then going through it again to check for that coachability? Is that, is that how that works? Yeah. So they will, um, we, we, we tend to have some standard role plays and then we'll, we'll switch them up every now and then just so that, you know, they're fresh and even just for the interviewers that they're listening to like different content. Um, But we don't always critique them on the same thing. So for example, if, you know, someone didn't articulate, you know, HubSpot's value prop well, Mm -hmm. or if they didn't maybe ask a few probing questions on the flip side and show that they can be conversational Mm -hmm. and how they would approach in that way, we might give a coaching tip on, you know, can you, I'd love to hear a few extra probing questions that you would have if I were to answer with X, Y, Z, where would you take that? And so it's really understanding how they think in a sales call and in a way that they would take coaching from a manager, because we're, we're very much a coaching culture and in a teaching culture. So gong uh conversational intelligence is a big part of um of our playbook you know which is we record all the calls managers are mandated to um to listen to calls and coach them and score them for a certain number of hours a week so we really are invested in rep success so that coaching piece we want to know that someone's open and willing and comfortable with being coached because it's such a core part of our culture. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that ties back into overcoming adversity too? To me, it's like, if you were able to overcome adversity, maybe it's coaching that you've had to go through in your own head to figure out how do I get over this or having a mentor in the past that helped you get through adversity. Do you see any tie to that? Yeah. So I'll tell you, uh, I was on the phone with one of my best friends yesterday who, you know, graduated with an MBA. She's 20 plus years in her career. She just switched uh, from fashion to SaaS. Uh, she's not in sales. And she got uh, feedback from her boss that, you know, she kind of submitted some work that was subpar. And, you know, she was crippled. She's like, oh my gosh, am I going to lose my job? And, you know, as we, t- and just, you know, really was in a state. And I said, you got a piece of feedback. You know, it's just about kind of take it you know, adapt, how can you do better, learn from it and like move forward. And, you know, so much of sales is a mindset and really, I guess any job, but, you know, can you take the feedback and not take it personally, you know, kind of remove yourself and your ego from, and that personal connection to your work and saying, oh, actually I said something, I can change my talk track. This could be better. And it's not about you. It's kind of about the content and the work that you're doing. 
So that adversity piece, being able to take criticism that's constructive and not be crippled by it. Um, and also, listen, like there are good months, there are bad months. Demand, you know, switches. Sometimes you might be in a territory that the buddy next to you has a, you know, hotter territory than you do, but you got the same quota. You got to figure out how to get there. You can't just say they have a better patch than I do and I can't hit my number in the same way that they do. So like, how do you figure out a path, overcome that adversity and do it with, you know, optimism and a willingness to work on getting better? So that's kind of the way we, we think about it. I like it. I like it. Yeah, the note, the overcoming adversity. Yeah, it's it's the external piece too. I was going to point out, right? It's not not the inter, not just the internal feedback from the from the manager, but you know, getting told no, you know, forty times in a week, right? Yeah. Like, you know, if you can't, uh, you know, if if you can't sustain that, you know, maybe fifty times in a week, depending on if you make make fifty five calls instead of forty five calls, you're going to get told no, you know, fifty two times. So, need yeah. outlets. Got to have outlets. Got a bluff steam. And I'd also say, you know, uh, we we show a bunch of our managers. I mean, we have managers on my on my team, directors who were on uh, performance plans when they were reps, and we have formulaic performance plans. And it was, you know, people come out the other side, and you either decide to fight, or you decide to flight, or fly, I guess. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, and that's a real human reaction. You know, am I going to fight here and like come out the end? Do I believe in myself? In the end, it's do you believe in yourself that you can overcome this? And that's the piece of overcoming adversity. Can you articulate that you face something before that you got to get on the other side of? Um, and, you know, some people have super compelling personal stories that that's that, that they if they feel comfortable sharing. And some of them are professional and some of them are like kind of lackluster. Like I got to be in a class and I wanted to be an A student. And you're like, uh, I don't, I don't know if you really have that bite yet that like you've had to face something really tough. I wanted to go to Harvard, but I only got into Yale. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, let's get into like, like how you get, get candidates in the talent funnel. Like, what does that look like with HubSpot? Obviously you've got a product that people use and you've probably hired some people that have been users, which is awesome in, in that regard. But like, what does it look like um, just getting candidates in general? So we have the good fortune of having a great, you know, employee brand and culture and benefits and all of that. So I do think that from um, a, like employee branding perspective, we have a whole team that kind of helps bring in, you know, put out that content. So we have a, a ton of uh, inbound interest from our candidate pool. So, so that is great, but it's not always easy to break through. Um, and we do, we have recruiters who read every resume and they look to see who's a good fit. And I'll tell you, I've sent them people who are good fits before and they've rejected them. And I've had to go back and say, no, really, like maybe that this resume doesn't speak to, you know, why they would be successful and I can give them that feedback. But so inbound is one. And then the other piece is, you know, we still do some targeting. We know there are great companies out there. Um, they're not all SaaS. They might be, um, you know, if it's, you know, a media company, um, but that will target specifically and have some of our recruiting sourcers um, target some talent and, and look that way. Cool. And then of course we, we also do, you know, referrals from our, uh, our current network of employees. Mm -hmm. And we do podcasts with RepView. <laughs> 
that's the latest one, I guess. Um, um, what, Brian, go ahead. I'll kick it over to you. What do you got? No, I, was, I, no, I, I like that. I, I was just kind of wondering, like, when you said, you know, there, there's, there's certainly examples of the recruiting team missing one that you like is that related to maybe like you see something in the background overcoming adversity or you like what, what how, how do you like i mean i think you're probably you know your guys are growing really well and hubspot's doing fantastic so there's a lot of alignment going on there but in that micro case of misalignment like what's what's an example of that and i think this will help the people that listen to this call i think a lot of them are like potentially interested in working at hubspot and so maybe it would help them a little bit to like framing who they are and their background and their LinkedIn profile and things like that. So who, what, what is maybe an example of, of somebody that, that there was some misalignment you were like, Oh, this is that we need to talk to this person. And TA team is maybe like, eh. Yeah. So uh, I actually kind of asked them this just recently. And um, some of the things they look for is core numbers. So, you know, they hit, you know, X quota, this is their percent. So, there are some there. I know a bunch of companies that uh, I can talk about kind of how we craft our sales plans in a second and, and um, rep attainment. But there are some companies where 80% attainment is really good, maybe 90% attainment is really good. Mm-hmm. Whereas if a recruiter comes in and they see 90% attainment, they'd say this person, you know, stinks. Um, and so how do you articulate like, I was 90% attainment, maybe it's I was the top five top five reps on my team or, you know, at the company or, you know, for X number of quarters, it is those stats that are kind of undeniable and helps articulate and benchmark you against others in your company. So I was 110% attainment doesn't mean anything if everybody else was 125, right? So like the recruiter doesn't know what that means in relation to your company. So being able to articulate that, um, you know, definitely how you rank among your team. If you've, if you've had specific accolades, if it's president's club, um, you know, things of, of that nature, obviously, obviously helps. Um, for some of the intangibles, as I mentioned, like this person is hungry, this person, I'll, I'll tell you, there's a, a candidate I brought in recently who none of the stats really would have been compelling to the, the recruiting team. But she was very entrepreneurial. She had a day job. And then at night she had, I mean, kind of her side hustle was she had crafted a community website and she was able to get advertising for that website. And she created community events of hundreds of people that gave back to families and, you know, also had a huge following on Twitter. And it's, it's, that stuff is super compelling and it, you know, we'll take that entrepreneurial spirit. We'll take that hustle. We'll take that willingness to go the extra mile to do something you're passionate about. It's just being able to package that up and you can do that by, you know, yes, writing a pretty compelling either micro cover letter, even though my recruiters say they don't read a ton of them. They don't read a ton of the cover letters. Um, but I have people, and please don't have everyone do this, but write me on LinkedIn. And that compelling story comes through. If it's a manager at a company, if you see it's a VP of sales at a company, you know, cutting through and say, I'm going to be your next best rep. Um, and here's why. 
you know, that that's the stuff that's the intangible that makes for great salespeople. Uh, that's different than just, I was 110% to my number. You, you can't turn on the fire in people. They either have it or they don't. And that kind of message to you is like how you, to your point, like how you show that off. Otherwise you just pass it on and move along, but the yeah. DNA. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Great salespeople can be put in the wrong org and never hit their number. Right. Totally. Been there, been there. Not fun. Not fun. Yeah. 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 Um, what does ramping look like at HubSpot? Like, how do you, how do you guys ramp the team? Uh, we're constantly, um, investing more and more here. And so we have a five month ramp period, uh, is very, it's a very deep, intense handholding ramp, um, you know, onboarding and enablement. So what we want is for people to feel as though they get their sales MBA from HubSpot um, and not just when they're ramping, but also as they work here. So it starts off with um, a three week overall ramp from, you know, the company, the products, um, you know, then it goes into sales and our systems, um, how we position our products, you know, who we sell to, what good fits, good fit customers look like. Um, and then that goes into understanding how do you run a good discovery call? How do you actually do a good connect call? And some of them, if you've been a salesperson at other places might feel basic. Um, but I don't, I always learn new things, even when I go through these, you know, programs, um, you know, we have role play sessions, you get a mentor when you're onboarded. Um, and then one of the things we implemented just this year is we have specific ramping teams and ramp managers who focus specifically on ramping reps as a cohort. That way they get to work together. They're all learning, you know, at the same time. Um, so we're hyper invested in our ramping reps. One of the most important pieces of our overall sales model is uh, rep retention. And so once you get in in-house, we are hyper invested in making reps successful. Um, which is why we really need someone who has that intellectual curiosity, that commitment to winning, you know, and being able to, um, you know, work at that continuous learning. Love it. Love it. At five months. So that's across all segments, SDR to AE, or is that just specifically AE? Uh, it, so we have different AE cohorts. So we have a small business, you know, AE mid marketing corp. Um, for the most part, corp is a is more elongated. Um, so that is, you know, teams that call on companies that have two hundred or more employees, which for us is is our kind of enterprise motion. Uh, it just is more a complexity to the sale, more um, decision makers in the selling process, more technical buyers. Um, they're, I think a nine or 12 month ramp, we just changed it, but somewhere around there. Um, and so, you know, you have a kind of a baby quota and every month it goes up, you know, slightly, but, um, but we do that way. Then we have a whole other training program. Once you graduate from your sixth month, you get to your seventh month, we have a it's called project thrive and it is hyper-focused on your growth from seven to 12 months. And then we also do Sandler sales methodology. So that's another way that we invest in continuous learning. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like that's a, it, there's just so many nuances to what you guys sell and especially becoming a full platform and all the different th things that you're offering. It makes sense. 
Yes, the, the, the cool thing is unlike other portfolio companies that have many products, all of our products are interconnected with each other and they're all built on the same platform and we can sell to go-to-market teams. So um, you're not contact switching in terms of the use case, but um, they all kind of tie in together from you know marketing demand, sales CRM management to customer success management, and then the operations you know that kind of support all of that. Awesome. Who doesn't need a sales MBA? Exactly. You can't get it. You can't get it anywhere. I don't nope. think there's anywhere that has a sales MBA. There's definitely not. Yeah. And it's like, by the time they go through it, it's, there's so many changes that have happened anyway. There's market conditions that have changed. There's new tools out there. There's new ways that buyers are finding people. Like it's, it's, it's constantly evolving. You have to keep learning. That's a common theme of this whole thing. Totally. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, all right. We, we end the show with, with the same question we ask every sales leader that comes on. Would you show a sales candidate your quota team and dashboard? hundred percent. Have you, have you been asked? Oh yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm sure they get asked all the time. I, I don't know if they asked to show it maybe, but yeah, I mean, I can, I can tell you transparently um, kind of how we build our sales plan. So we are um, every time I meet with other sales leaders, I'm part of a lot of networking groups and I tell them about our sales plan. They, they can't believe it. So, uh, and I'll tell you, no one has more skin in the game for reps to be successful than me. So most, most companies, when they build a sales plan, build it so that the company hits 100% of the company number when reps hit 80%. When reps hit 80%, managers hit 90% of the company number, okay? So it's in the, if the reps hit above 80%, that's gravy for the company. But that's how the majority of sales plans across the board are built. I know some companies that build it at 60% rep attainment, 70% rep attainment, and they're okay with churning reps out. It's just pure sink or swim. We build our sales plan on average for it to be 110% of rep attainment, the company hits our number. So if reps are not hitting 100%, we are missing. So it is in my best interest. I don't hit my number. I don't get my bonus. I don't get my full OTE unless my reps are at 110%. Uh, so we build our plans in that way. One, because we want people to make money, right? You, you want to be a seller who feels comfortable, confident, and like you are making the money that the company tells you you can make, number one. And number two, as I mentioned earlier, like rep retention is really important to us. And so- you know, we have reps who have been there 10 years, seven years, five years. Um, you know, people don't want to leave and they, they stick, they stick through it, but it's because the money is there to be made and reps really have the opportunity to not just like achieve at that 110, but at the 150, the 175. And, and we want that for the team. So we build our plan so that people want to stay and they can do well and support their families you know, life goals, et cetera. Hmm. Love it. It's, it's definitely unique. And I was going to bring up the point about how important it, it makes retention of sales team members on your team, right? You're, you're, yeah. you know, it's just critical for you to have any chance of hitting your number, right? If you have a spike in attrition of, of your team, you're, you're pretty much, it's going to be almost impossible, you know, to, to hit your number. And, and I think, knowing we, we talk to salespeople every day and we kind of are salespeople too, 
um, the, the alignment is unique with leadership. Um, and that's a big kind of issue point, you know, in, in modern selling is the, the perception of senior leaders being so far disjointed from the reality of goal hitting and, and, and attainment. So I think that probably goes a long way. Those two things that is, is highly related to your, your retention and ability to retain, uh, employees as well is yeah. my, my analysis. So that's yeah. awesome. I think 2021, if I have it right, I think on average, I think it was maybe around 115, 117 was the average rep attainment. Uh, mm -hmm. This year has been different because we did not assume the market conditions. It's over 100%. I want to say it's maybe like 105. By the way, that's like a bad year for us, like a rep attainment. And what we Your do- also, has just been- and what we measure, another really important measurement for us is we want roughly at least 50 to 60% of the team well over 100%, right? Because if the average attainment is, is 105, you have some that are well above that, you have some that are well below that. But uh, once we don't have 50% of the team over 100%, we worry about rep retention. So it's a huge, huge part of our model, super important to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Rep view showing well over 60% historically, 66, over 66% hitting quota, which is a very, very good number. Oh, good. I'm glad it aligns. I didn't even know. I didn't even do my due diligence prior to this call to make sure that anything I said lined up with, uh, with what the rep said. And, and <laughs> why? Because you're in the top 10% of all the companies on rep view for product market fit and top 10% for software org specifically. And then you factor in your great culture and leadership scores and your product, uh, your professional training development scores all leads to, to be why, why HubSpot's ranked so well on rep view. Yeah. We yeah. are, we are very much a rep first company. We really want to solve for the reps and yeah. everything we do. And you got to solve for the company, right? We have shareholders, we have other employees, all of that we need, you know, we have numbers we got to hit, but we are very, very rep first in rep happiness and, and rep success. Backs it up. Backs it up. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I didn't even, I, by the way, I live in rep view. I just haven't, didn't look at it uh, to remind myself prior to our chat today. Yeah. All good. All good. Thanks for coming on, Michelle. It's great chatting with you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.